Well, you probably noticed in your bulletin, we are going to take a slight detour, as it is Communion Sunday, from our study of Luke. We'll return to that next Lord's Day. But I want you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn in them to the book of Colossians. Colossians, as we prepare our hearts for our time around the communion table, I just want to take a few moments to remind us of the blessed truth of deliverance. Blessed truth of deliverance. And I, I pray that your hearts will be encouraged. I pray that each one of us will be challenged by what we hear this morning from the Word of God. Would you just bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord, once again, we bow before you knowing that we are dependent upon you for all things, especially our understanding of your Word. We trust and know that you have given us your spirit to help us understand, to lead us into all truth. And so we rely upon that. We know that it is not in one sense mystical, and yet there is a a mystery to it that we who were dead are now alive and we can understand your word, what it means by what it says, and we can begin by the power of your spirit to submit our lives to it, put it into practice, and to live according to what you have asked. So do that for us this morning as we open our hearts and minds to what you have to say. In Christ's name, amen. I want us to focus our attention this morning on chapter 1 and uh, verses 13 and 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I want to read however, from verse 13 all the way down through verse 23, just so we can kind of get a fuller sense of the Apostle Paul's words to the believers in Colossae. He says, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body. That is the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel 
that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Of course, the Apostle Paul is, once again, as he has does so often throughout all of the letters that he has written, he is highlighting the reality of the gospel. And this passage is filled with magnificent and heights and peaks and the largest of mountains, if you will, if we could describe it in kind of a landscape kind of way, these are the largest mountains of doctrine. This is true doctrine. Sadly, doctrine over the past several years seems to have fallen on hard times within evangelicalism. In fact, the Apostle Paul uh, over in 2 Timothy chapter 4 says this in chapter 4 verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Of course, doctrine is truth. Truth is doctrine when Specifically, you're thinking about the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul knew that. The Apostle Paul taught that. And he says that everything else is an untruth. It is a myth. The reason that doctrine has fallen on hard times within evangelicalism over the past decade or so is simply because people want their ears tickled. That's clear. People want to hear what they want to hear. They want to be comfortable in whatever life they are living, and doctrine doesn't allow that. Doctrine is truth. Truth is narrow. Truth divides. And I am grateful to our glorious Lord that the Apostle Paul did not buy off on the reality that doctrine divides. Because this passage in Colossians chapter 1, is full of transforming doctrine. Doctrine, by way of its simple definition, means something that is taught. If you were to think of the terminology doctrine, that's that's the basic idea. Something that is taught, a, a body of information that is taught. In other words, doctrine is a group or a, a system of teachings related to any particular subject. You might have been trained in the doctrines of science or the doctrines of medicine. Those are doctrines. Not all of them are truthful doctrines, but they are, in fact, doctrines. Well, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 23, we have doctrine. We have a body of teaching, and this body of teaching is related to salvation or the gospel. And how, in fact, salvation takes place in the life of every believer. This is how it happens. So this passage is both soteriological, it is about salvation, and it is Christological, it is all about Christ, because salvation and Christ are intimately linked. You cannot have salvation without Christ, and if there is no Christ, you have no salvation. 
So this passage is Christological because it is about Christ and his preeminence in all things, as you heard the Apostle Paul say, beginning even verse 16 and following. It tells us that Christ is first in all creation. He is the firstborn, in fact, verse 15 says, of all creation. He created all things, verse 16 says. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, verse 17 says. And of course, He is the beginning, the head of the church, the first to be raised from the dead, as verse 18 states. So it's very, very Christological. Someone comes to you and says, who is Jesus Christ? You could go right here to Colossians chapter 1 and say, here's who Christ is. Here's who Christ is. He is eternal. He is the creator. He is, in fact, God. He is the head of the church. Guess what? Everyone who has ever been in the Catholic religion, the Pope, is not the head of the church. Pope is not the head of the church. The Apostle Paul didn't believe that. The Apostle Peter didn't believe that. In fact, he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus Christ, he is the head. And so this is a Christological passage, but it is also soteriological because it is about the doctrine of salvation. In fact, just those 11 verses that I read to us, Paul touches on the doctrines of justification. He touches on the doctrine of redemption. He touches on the doctrine of forgiveness, on substitution, on satisfaction, on imputation, and on the doctrine of perseverance. All in just those 11 verses. So this passage is filled with doctrine, and it is meant not to divide, it is meant to unite us. It is meant to encourage us about what we have in Jesus Christ. It is a passage about how you and I, as believers, those who have believed in Jesus Christ by faith, how we came to be included in this marvelous truth that he expresses in the verse prior to the section I read in chapter 1, verse 12. Notice what he says. I am giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verses 13 through 23 tell us how that came to be. So Paul is telling these Colossian believers in in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 1 how he has prayed for them, how he has asked God to open their understanding to these things, how they would be fully equipped to handle whatever would come their direction because of who they are in Jesus Christ. It is his prayer that they be fully controlled by the will of God so that they could endure patiently all that God had for them. So that through it all, no matter what came their way, they would be able to rejoice. They would be able to joyously be thankful because it was God who had qualified them to share in what God has. 
He has qualified us, Paul says, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, it is God who took the unqualified, you and I, spiritually unqualified to be with him at all. God took us and made us qualified. I love that word, qualified. It means to authorize. To authorize or, or to make it fit or to make it sufficient. I love that. Think about that about ourselves. As unbelievers, we were unqualified. Prior to our salvation, each and every one of us was unfit for God's kingdom. This is one of the truths and realities as to why God just will not let a sinner into His glory. You are not qualified to be in His glory. You're unfit for the kingdom of God. We do not fit in a place where perfection reigns, where righteousness rules. As sinners, without Jesus Christ, we cannot fit there. We are unqualified to be in it. Our own efforts are disqualifying before God. We cannot get there ourselves, and so God has to qualify us for His kingdom so that we could, in fact, participate in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's what Colossians 12, 1-12 tells us. That's what the Apostle Paul wants us to know. Why? Why? To, pro- to protect us against false doctrine. To protect us against false doctrine. False doctrine is rampant, not only in the Western world of evangelicalism, but in the world at large. There is false doctrine everywhere. And the Colossian believers were having to deal with this. They were dealing with the infiltration of what many churches deal with today and what many promote today, and that is a Christ-plus philosophy of salvation. You can get saved. You need Jesus Christ, just like Paul was telling the Galatians that they were being duped, they were being bewitched by those who had come in and said, yes, Christ is good for you, but he isn't good enough. Christ is okay, but he isn't sufficient to save you. You need to do some things yourself. Well, the Colossian brothers and sisters were having to deal with similar things. This was a new doctrine that said the unqualified weren't really unqualified. It was a denial, really, of the total depravity of man. Then mankind isn't dead in his trespasses and sins, like Ephesians 2 says, but he's just actually pretty sick. He's pretty sick, and, and if he kind of gets the right medicine or, or gets the right things to help him, he himself can, can make himself well, and he can become good enough, he can become well enough to be qualified to be in the kingdom of God. And yet that is a lie. So this new doctrine said that there was something inherently good about men, about humanity, and something inherently in them that was good that could produce enough, and that smacked up squarely against the doctrine of the sufficiency of salvation in Christ alone. And so Paul reminds these believers that it was all God. That it was all God who saved them. It was none of them. It was God who qualified them to receive anything from Him. 
They did nothing to qualify themselves. God's the one who did it all. And so here's the question that I want us to think through this morning before we come to our communion table. How does God qualify any believer? How does God qualify a believer? How how are we qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? Well, Paul answers that question for us in verses 13 and 14. He summarizes this divine work of redemption. Verses 13 and 14 really are are somewhat of a a condensed version, a, a shorter catechism, if you will, of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans when he said in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And then the Apostle Paul in Romans, in Romans 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 8, Paul describes how that salvation happens. How God does that. How God accomplishes that salvation. Well, this is what we have before us in a, in a very condensed and shorter catechism, if you will. And it begins with a summary of the doctrine of redemption. The doctrine of redemption, beloved, is the doctrine of divine liberation. That's what it is. Let me say that again. The doctrine of redemption is a doctrine of divine liberation. We can understand that through two massive realities or two tremendous realities that the Apostle Paul lays out for us here. He, he lays out for us divine rescue and divine relocation. Divine rescue and divine relocation. Notice what it says here in verse 13. For He delivered us. Right, Paul says, I give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light because... Because, that's what the four is there, because He delivered us. He delivered us. It's difficult when I think about this to get past just those words. He delivered us. The more I've read these verses, the more I'm unable to get past that profound reality. That it was God who divinely liberates us who do not deserve it. The reason we became qualified is because God liberated us. Several years ago when I was in the Air Force, I spent a few years in Germany and the opportunity to go to Munich, Germany. In Munich, Germany, there was one of the World War II concentration camps on the outskirts called Dachau. And the Americans liberated that prison camp at the end of the war, towards the end of the war, and found atrocity after atrocities. And it's it's an amazing place to go and see all the pictures and all those kinds of things that happened. But liberation is, 
is the key to to those people and to the execution that was happening there to being stopped. Well, that's the reality here. That God has liberated us. Some of your Bibles say He he rescued us. I love that term. Rescued us. That actually is, is the best rendering for the original word here, rescue. The New American Standard used the word delivered, but I think rescue is, a, is the best way to say it. Ruomai, that's the original word. It's, 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 a, it's that word that, that literally means to draw to oneself, to, to take someone out, rescuing those who are captive like the American soldiers did with the Jews. It rescued them. They took them out. They were captives and they were rescued. So too, God has drawn us to Himself. God has rescued us. It's a divine rescue. Why? Because we could never rescue ourselves. We were totally unable to rescue ourselves. In fact, we were blind to the very fact that we were in prison. That we needed rescue. We thought, prior to knowing Jesus Christ, that everything about us was okay. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, no one seeks after God. We could say it this way, no one sees their need for rescue. No one in their natural self sees their need for rescue. Everyone believes they are alive spiritually, and yet the Scriptures tell us no one sees God All are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so the context here in Colossians 1 implies there is an utter hopelessness. There is a misery of life apart from the mercy of God. Apart from the divine rescue of God. Apart from the emancipating work of God. Apart from God doing something, we remain lost and we remain in need of divine rescue. I was reading some time ago about the procedures for rescuing something, someone in the water. Someone who's in the water. What should be done when someone needs water rescue? I found it quite interesting what the first step was, what the most important step was, in fact. The very first step in water rescue. I'm sure all of you are thinking of all kinds of things. The most important step is water rescue. Guess what? Locate the person that needs to be rescued. Makes sense, doesn't it? If we can't find the person, you can't rescue them. You think about people who have gone overboard on cruise ships or whatever else. They they don't find that person. There's no rescue. The Coast Guard sends out helicopters across the ocean. They don't find it. It's not rescued. They all think of the flight that went down in the Indian Ocean some years ago, and they searched time and time and time again, day after day after day, found nothing. You can't find it? There's no rescue. Beloved, that is why God had to find us. That is why God rescues us, because we are hopelessly lost. Notice what he says. Notice what Paul says to the Colossian believers. For he delivered us, what? From the domain of darkness. 
What are we rescued from? We are rescued from the power of darkness, the domain, the, the state, the, the, the nation state, if you will, the, the place, the rulership of darkness. Simply stated, we are rescued from the jurisdiction of Satan himself. The prince of the power of the air. Anytime you see that word darkness in Scripture, in the context around it, it has nothing to do with nature. You know it means the absence of light. Even in nature it can mean that, although the stars are hung in the darkness and we see light even when it's dark. Darkness in Scripture means the absence of light. Light in Scripture refers to things like God's holiness and God's love and and God's glory and the truth that that illumines our eyes and our minds. The very character of God, in other words, is is when we see light. In fact, 1 John 1.5 says, God is what? Light. And in Him there is what? No darkness at all. So there you have the juxtaposition of both of those concepts being related to God. There is no darkness in God at all. In Him there is light because He is light. And so the domain of darkness here is where none of the divine character of God is reflected. This was our spiritual home prior to faith in Christ. We were in the domain of darkness. We were dead, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under the domain of the prince of the power of the air, the one who works in the sons of disobedience, even as today, Paul said. This was our spiritual home without Christ, but God delivered us. God liberated us from that, and not that not only implies that we needed rescue, that we were lost, that He found us, but it also tells us the completeness of that effect upon our lives. In other words, rescue isn't a temporary reality. The Coast Guard doesn't find someone in the ocean and then radio back, okay, we found the guy, see ya. And they leave him in the ocean. They don't do that. They rescue him. They actually get him. They take him out of the ocean and transfer him onto dry land. Us in Christ, Paul here is saying, listen, we have been permanently rescued. God's rescue of us is not a temporary reality. Our deliverance isn't for today only. It's not, hey, you're saved today, you're not saved tomorrow. That's not how it works. You might be sitting there and say, well, why is that important? Why is that important to know? Because in the doctrine, hatred, evangelical world that some try to promote, in the Christ plus evangelical world of our day, it's very easy to be sucked back into the idea that something from the world can help us. That as Christians, that we need the wisdom of the world in order to get along in the Christian life. That we can't, that Christ has somehow, yes, saved us. He, he took us out of the ocean and, and placed us on the dry land, but then he said, have it your way, do it yourself. Do your own thing. Get the advice of all the worldlings around you. That'll help you get along. Listen, if Christ is not sufficient, 
If Christ is not sufficient, if He is not the preeminent one in our life every day, then God's divine liberation, God's deliverance of us was only temporary and we need more of Christ. If Christ isn't enough for all things, then He isn't enough for anything. Right? This is why Paul says to, the, to these believers, listen, for by Him all things were created. All things have been created by Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the, firstborn from the dead, so that He might become the first in everything. You know what Paul's saying? Christ is sufficient. Christ isn't simply the one who created it, spun it like a top, and then said, hey, let it go. Christ is controlling it all. Christ is upholding it all. And Christ is the head of the body which you have been called into. He is the beginning from the end. He is the firstborn. He has preeminence in everything, including your life, and especially in your life. There are many today who find themselves looking to the advice of those who dwell in the domain of darkness. Listening to the self-help books that are sold on Christian shelves as if they're Christian books, but share no biblical passages in the books at all. Nothing. Don't, don't come to the Scriptures and learn from the Scriptures and then write about what the Scriptures say in order to deal with the issues of life. No, they just share thoughts about what the world is, thoughts about feelings, thoughts about self-help things. Things that surely might, might help on a surface level and, and, and maybe change some things in a behavioral way, but have no effect on the inside. They're listening to the prince of the power of the air rather than the one who's delivered them from the domain of darkness. This is crucial, beloved. This is crucial for us to understand. This is crucial for us to get in our hearts and our minds. Our rescue wasn't just for a moment in time. And, and since that moment in time has passed, now we need something more. No, we've not only been completely and divinely rescued, but Paul says, secondly, we have been divinely relocated. We have been divinely relocated. Notice what he says, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's the rescue. And here's the second part, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Taken from one kingdom and placed into another kingdom. This is the blessed reality of deliverance. We could, we could even use the word transplant here. I think transplant helps us get the idea somewhat more in our minds what happened spiritually when God rescued us. He transplanted us. The Colossian believers certainly would have understood that term in, in a great way. They, they lived in a time and a place where rulers would come and conquer other nations, and they would, they would run over people, and they would take the land, and the conquered people, they would transplant them to where they wanted them to go. That happened to Israel several times. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, transplanted them. 
So we too have been transplanted, but not in a bad way, in the most blessed way. We have been transplanted from spiritual slavery to spiritual liberty. We've gone from being a slave to sin, taken out of, rescued from the domain of darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, which is a kingdom of spiritual liberty, spiritual freedom in Christ. In fact, Dr. William Hendrickson put it this way, quote, God brought us out of the dark and dismal realm of false ideas and imagery ideals into the sun-bathed land of clear knowledge and realistic expectation. Out of the bewildering sphere of perverted cravings and selfish hankerings into the blissful realm of holy yearnings and glorious self-denials. Out of the miserable dungeon of intolerable bonds and heart-rending cries into the magnificent palace of glorious liberty and joyful song. Unquote. What a great way to describe that. Here's how Paul said it. He transferred us, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It takes us in modern days a whole lot more words to say what God said in a few short words. And since that's the case, since we have been transferred, let us not think that our rescue and our relocation is only partial. Let's not think that. That that somehow by means of some kind of humanistic philosophy or some kind of ceremonial rite or, or some kind of worship of intelligence or as we see flying around at breakneck speed today, the worship of science, that it will get us any nearer to God than God has already brought us by His holiness. We can't get any closer to God than we already are in Jesus Christ. If we truly know Christ, then we have once and for all time been rescued and relocated. We've been taken out, taken out of the domain of darkness, placed into the, not semi-darkness, we haven't been placed into a into a semi-dark place that a little bit, there's, there's a, some, some hindering of the darkness where we are now. No, we have been placed into the kingdom of the Son of His love. You see that? He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is the Son of His love, His special love, the love relationship between the Father and the Son, you and I, by God's Action qualifying us has sucked us into to himself into this love relationship between the Father and the Son. Luke chapter 12, verse 32 tells us that the Father gives the kingdom to the Son and then to everyone who loves the Son. This is what Paul is. is Intimating, this is what Paul is talking about when he says we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you see that? We're not in darkness. We're not in partial darkness. We are in light. Why? Because we are in Christ who is the light. And because we are in Him and because we are in the light, we are given the kingdom because the Father loves the Son and whoever loves the Son gets the kingdom. We are part of the inheritance. 
So if through Christ we are completely rescued and completely relocated, if we are not completely rescued and completely relocated, then we are not rescued at all. All right, if God doesn't completely do it, if it's not full in Christ, if it's only partial in Christ, then we are not rescued at all. We may have been thrown a life raft, but that does us no good because we haven't been transferred out of the ocean. We haven't been taken off the bottom. We're dead. We're dead without God's work because we're not even floating in the ocean. We are like sand on the bottom of the ocean. We can't even grab the life raft. In fact, if God threw it to us, we wouldn't want it. God not only rescued us, He held, He had to get us and bring us out. But notice our rescue and relocation came. It came as a result of a complete ransom being paid. We were rescued, relocated. Why? Because of a complete ransom being paid. You notice in verse 14, in whom, right? Describing the Son, in whom, refers to the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Now we need to pause just for a moment. Because the word redemption is such an important word. Redemption is the means by which rescue and relocation happens. Let me say that again. Redemption is the means by which rescue and relocation takes place. This is what God uses to rescue us and relocate us. Our English word redemption comes from the Latin root redimere. It means to repurchase or to buy back. To buy back. And really, really the emphasis of that of that very word, even in the English, that, that draws from the Latin is the release, the, the release of those who were once captive or the release of the one who was once dead or detained in that spiritual death. It's a, it's a freeing, a freeing of those who are a, a slave to the householder, a slave to the master. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in Him, talking about Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So Paul is elaborating a little more on that reality of redemption and what, what took place in the redeeming process, right? It was a redemption through the blood of Christ for the forgiveness. And, and what happened in that redemption through the blood of Christ was the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of the grace of God. So God developed the transaction, accomplished the transaction, and then finished the transaction. In the Old Testament, 
God redeemed Israel from the slave market of Egypt. That's clearly what it says when God drew them out with the Passover lamb and the angel of death goes through Egypt and kills all the firstborn of animal and children who didn't have the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their house. Well, in the New Testament, God redeems his people through his own son, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was Christ who paid the ransom debt. It was the blood of Christ that paid for our redemption to redeem us from the penalty of our sin. So redemption was a rescue. It was was the means by which that rescue happened. It rescued us from our sin. It rescued us from the power of Satan himself through through the costly sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And God was satisfied with the sacrifice. God was delighted with the sacrifice. God was honored through the sacrifice. And therefore we have, as Paul says, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have the pardon we do not deserve. We have the qualification for those who are unqualified. In Christ, we have the remission of the penalty that we do not deserve. In Christ, we have, as Paul says, the forgiveness of sins. We do not deserve that. We sit here this morning as saved people 2,000 plus years after the cross of Jesus Christ, after the resurrection of the glorious Lord, and we have forgiveness of sins which we do not deserve. Every sin you committed yesterday, every sin you commit today and have committed already, every sin you by God's grace will commit tomorrow, the gracious mercy of God has forgiven them because of Christ. Forgiveness of sins. Afeesin. Afeemi, really. The words made up of two words in the original language. Forgiveness. One meaning from and the other meaning to send. To send from. Send away. Because of Christ, because of His death on our behalf, God sent away our sin. That's forgiveness of sins. He sent it away. We read it this morning in Psalm 103. He sent it how far? As far as the east from the west. As far as the east is from the west. The blood shed through the death of Christ liberates us. Liberated the Apostle Paul. The Colossian believers needed to know that it had once and for all, liberated them. They needed nothing else. That's exactly what you and I need to embrace and know and realize and remember. Have deep in our heart is understanding. By faith, we have been liberated from the divine wrath of God. Faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who was the redemption. We have been liberated from the bondage of sin and guilt. We have been liberated from the impossible burden of keeping the law. None of us could ever do that. 
Paul says, listen, Christ is sufficient. You have been forgiven of sins in Christ. That's why we're qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Because we are children of light. We have been forgiven sin. Our debt is paid in full. What a glorious truth. Is it any wonder that Paul in verses 15 through 23 would just go on to extol the great wonders of who Christ is and his sufficiency in all things? Christ is sufficient in our salvation in all things. I mean, here's why, because he's sufficient in everything. You don't need to go to anything else. You don't need anything more. You have Christ. So continue in the faith that you have, firmly established and steadfast. Don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Don't do that. That would be foolish. Many of you know my favorite hymn is It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio Spafford. Of course, pen those words after the horrific death of his wife and daughters in a shipwreck. I love these words of one of the verses. My sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's what the psalmist was saying this morning. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Why? Because without you, I'm nothing. Because you have forgiven everything in Christ. Horatio Spafford could write those words because of sufficient redemption in Christ. Regardless of what took place in his life, the horrific reality of that. He knew that redemption in Christ brought forgiveness. That redemption in Christ rescued him from the domain and power of darkness and made him a subject of Christ's kingdom. And so he could say, praise the Lord Praise the Lord, oh my soul. You see, when we contemplate what God has done for us, how can we fathom to do anything else except just follow Him? How can we fathom going to lesser things for the answers that God gives? Beloved, never let us forget that we've been fully delivered. We've been fully delivered. And then let's live in light of that truth. That we have been delivered, rescued and transferred. We have been forgiven. Let's live as if we have. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we prepare 
that contemplate the reality of this profound truth in its very accomplishment here on this earth we are mindful of all that we have been given through the mercy and grace of you through your son Jesus Christ we acknowledge Lord that there are times probably times far too often than we'd like to acknowledge that we we live as if you're not sufficient. That other things have more sway than what your word says. That other people who are not saved have more sway than what your word tells us. That your word tells us to deny self and we, we don't do that as often as we ought. tells us to not fear, to fear you alone, and yet we fear the things of this earth. tells us that you have given us everything that we need pertaining to life and to godliness, to living now and to living in the glories of heaven, and yet we squander that understanding. All of it denies your sufficiency. All of it denies who you are. Majesty of your glory and greatness. All of it in reality creates a God of our own making. Lord, help us tear down those idols. Shred them. Turn only to you. Knowing that you are the sufficient Lord that you have brought us into your kingdom and we are to live as kingdom children. Not one foot in the world and one foot outside the world. With both feet firmly planted in the domain of the kingdom of light. Thank you for qualifying us through faith in Christ. Thank you that Christ is the sufficient sacrifice to redeem us and to rescue us and to forgive us. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross. My sin, my sin, my sin, all of it. Let me live with that understanding today. In your name we pray. Amen.